So boasting, that's what Paul's talking about here. We have, and it isn't hard to notice in our culture, we have, we have a problem with boasting, don't we? You know, bragging, crowing, right? strutting your stuff, right? Boasting. Now, this problem isn't new, of course. I mean, ever since the Garden of Eden, humanity has, at its core, been seeking ways to self-promote, seeking ways to, to show ourselves to be, to be worthy, to, to, be, to be great, at least in our own estimation. But the difference, I think now, because I think the problem is getting worse, objectively, I think the difference now is that unlike in antiquity, where only kings, conquering generals, had the ability to erect monuments to ourselves, to themselves, now all we have to do is go on Facebook or some other type of social media, and we can erect our very own monument. Right? We, we, can, we can do it much more easily today, kind of build monuments that testify to our, at least in our own eyes, greatness, right? Now, you might expect a pastor to say something like that, you know, the evils of pride and all those kinds of things. But, you know, this is something that's being observed by the culture as well. It's not, it's not just me. Elizabeth Bernstein writes a column for the Wall Street Journal. And she writes on relation, relationship and family kinds of issues. And a little while ago, she noted this, this boasting epidemic, as she calls it. And she, and she wrote a column about it. And she says that, that boasting has, in her words, gone viral. It's, it's, just, it's spreading out of control exponentially. And she says what, what has always been sort of a universal human tendency now just, it seems like it's out of control. And it's not just, it's not just because of the internet, she says. She says, this is, it shouldn't surprise us when we live in a society of unrelenting competition, where reality show contestants duke it out for the approval of aging celebrities and pastors have publicists. Isn't that interesting? She even calls out the pastors. But stop for a second and listen to what Listen to what she said. Is, what, what did she say is partially to blame? Did you hear what she said? Unrelenting competition. Right? She says that bragging in, in every case, whether it's stated bragging or implied bragging, bragging involves comparison. And that's true, isn't it? A desire to elevate my position relative to someone else. It isn't just that we want to say we're great. We want to say we're greater. We're better than someone else. Now, she's hitting on something there because it's not, a, it's not a new observation. That's exactly why Paul is bringing up the argument here because that's, that, was, that was what he was dealing with in the church in Corinth, divisions in the, in the church, people posturing in front of one another. And Paul, like I said with the argument that we looked at last week, said that the cross, the message of Christianity, undercuts that, right? eliminates the, the unrelenting competition, the constant comparison. Now, verse 26, he's saying that there's a second thing that we should look at that eliminates this, and that's where we come from. It's our spiritual, our spiritual origin. That's what it says in verse 26. It's kind of the topic sentence. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Now, you see what he's doing? That's, kind of, that's, that's like the topic sentence. Right? Do you remember this from school? I know it might be painful. Kids, do you, do you, are you doing stuff like this in school? Like, forgive me for being kind of language arts nerd here, but this is like, this is like the perfect paragraph. This is exactly how they teach you to write a paragraph. Right? You have a topic sentence. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. That's what Paul's kind of setting up. I want you to consider what you were when God called you. And then, and then you have, just like they teach you, you have three kind of supporting points, A, B, C, and then you summarize it at the end with sort of a concluding sentence, verse 31, therefore. Right? It's perfect. It's the, it's the perfect paragraph. So there's no need for me to do anything more than just, kind of, that's, that's the outline. Let's look at A, B, C. What is Paul saying? What, what, is the, what is Paul's argument for how boasting is excluded? Right? Well, A, he says, I want you to consider your low calling. 
where you came from. And, and point B, I want you to, or your, low, your low history, where you came from. And B, your high calling, where you're called to. And C, I want you to look at your true boast. So your low history, your high calling, and your true boast. All right, so first, your low history. This is, this is point A, second sentence. Look at what he says in the second part of verse 26. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. So what Paul's saying is that, is that when these Christians in Corinth were called, most of them would have been considered by human standards to be uneducated, the disenfranchised, right? the, the, lower, the lower class. Now, the scholars debate and continue to debate exactly how much of the early church was, was actually poor. And clearly, there is, there is some evidence in the early church that there were those that had positions of wealth or positions of prominence. In fact, some of the problems that Paul will be dealing with later in 1 Corinthians about how they come together to eat together, some come first, some eat, some bring food and some don't, and that it, some of those problems that he deals with later indicate that there were, even in the church in Corinth, differences in economic ability, economic station. But, but what is certainly clear is that the message of Jesus from the very beginning, has been extremely appealing to the uneducated, to the disenfranchised, to the lower classes. I mean, remember Jesus. Who did, who did he hang out with during his, his ministry? It wasn't with the cool kids. It was with the ones who were being, who were being bullied, the uncool. Now, in some cases, it was, they, were un, they were uncool in the eyes of the religious people because they had done things that had rebelled against God. They had done wrong things. And, and yet, nonetheless... That's who Jesus to go, chose to go and hang out with. And it wasn't just accidental, like, oops, who are you? I shouldn't be with you. It was very intentional on his part. Right? Remember the time Jesus is having dinner? It's in Mark chapter 2. Jesus is having dinner in the home of some of these folks with sinners and tax collectors. Right? And, and the, the people, all of, all of the wise, all the influential, all the noble people, they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, did you see? They're grumbling to themselves. you see what he's doing? He's eating with the tax collectors, with the sinners. And Jesus, of course, because he has, you know, perfect hearing, he hears exactly what they're talking about. And he says, look, he says, and this is helpful because it indicates this is not just kind of some happenstance on Jesus' part. This is very intentional. This is his strategy. He says to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He's saying, you think I'm in the wrong place? I'm exactly where I need to be. These people need a doctor. I'm here with the sick. Now, I want you to he hear rightly what Jesus is saying and hear rightly what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. He's not saying that the noble, that the influential, that the, the wise, that, that they aren't sick. Right? It's just, he's just saying that most of the time, because of their wisdom, because of their, their power, because of their noble birth, it makes them very hard for them to realize that they actually are. Right? In fact, I think... He make a case that Paul's assertion here in verse 26 actually is subtly including everyone in the, in the statement. Because regardless of, of how many people in the Christian church today or then fall below the technical poverty line, or how many people in the church today or then have college degrees or don't have college degrees, the truth is no one, no one is called unless they first understand their low history. In other words, understand that in a very real sense, they too are the uneducated the disenfranchised, the poor. No one comes unless they first realize that. Right? Because the real standard for wisdom, for influence, for nobility is not the other guy. That's what we like to make it. 
I'm wiser than them, right? It's comparison. Boasting is comparison. But that's not the real standard. The real standard is God himself. And by that standard, no one is wise. No one is educated. No one is influential. No one is noble. Right? That's the real standard. And so recognizing then the truth of your low history begins to eat at the root of boasting because, because we're, we're all equally low relative to the true standard. And then there's no ground for boasting as a result. So that's point, that's point A, your low history. Now B, look at it, your high calling. Verses 27 and, um, and 28, listen as I read this again. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Now, first thing I want you to notice is kind of the, is the way that this perfectly fits. What Paul does here, it perfectly fits with verse 26. Because right? look back at verse 26. He starts by saying, not many of you were wise by human standards. Right? Then go to verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Right? Then verse 26, go back. Right? Not many were influential. And then, goes down to verse 27, but God chose the weak things of the world, in other words, those without any influence, to shame the strong, to shame those with influence. Back up to verse 26, not many were of noble birth. Down to verse 28, but he chose the lowly things, the ones who weren't noble, the lowly things of this world, the despised things and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Do you see that? Do you see how, it, you see how the, the symmetry, do you see how it fits together? But more than that, do you see the point that Paul is making here? That which the world rejects, God chooses. And, and it's, it's that strong. It goes just beyond like what the world is indifferent to. It's the, what the world despises, it says. And even, even more than that, right, the things that are not, that's even stronger than despised. This is talking about people who are considered to be nothings, the things that are not. That's what it means. They're nothing. They're nobody. They're like non-persons. Non God chooses the nobodies. And why, does it say? To shame the somebodies. Just a few days ago, so earlier, earlier this week, a story ran on National Public Radio's website, the website for NPR, about the explosion of Christianity in Nepal. Now, for the geographically minded, Nepal is a relatively small country on the northeast corner of India, southwest corner of China. And, and its, it's, its northern region is extremely mountainous, and it, of, of the ten largest mountains in the world, eight of them are in, are in Nepal, including Mount Everest. Right? But, but for almost all of its history, it has been dominated by, by a Hindu-majority culture and the institution of the caste system formally in place, the caste system formally in place as recently as 2001 in Nepal. And even though it's now officially illegal to discriminate on the basis of caste, there remain large segments of the population, particularly the rural populations, that are regarded essentially as this, the things that are not, as non-persons, nobodies. Now, before 1950, and the pressure began to, to mount, you know, to let people in to climb mountains, right, before 1950, Nepal was essentially a closed country. No one was allowed in. Then they started letting mountain climbers in and stuff. But in, but in 1951, the census in Nepal listed zero Christians. Zero. By 1961, so kind of the, 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 after that, that first decade, right, after they began to let kind of mountain climbers in, the, the number had risen to 450. <laughs> so essentially still zero. 
Now, 2001, there were 102,000. And in 2011, 375,000. So that's in the last census period alone, a more than tripling of the population of Christians. And many believe that the number since 2011 is significantly higher now than that because it's continued to expand. Now, what accounts for this? This is why NPR is writing the story about it. Right? Why? Well, one of the major factors that they cite is the work of Christian missionary organizations among the poor and the victimized. Because the Christians go to the nobodies and they supply the material relief that the government can't. And they supply the spiritual hope that the upper caste dominated system refuses to. Christianity works where the power structures don't. Just like Paul's saying here. It dismantles them. It dismantles their hold on them. It nullifies the things that are. Right? Now, you might cry foul and kind of object and say, well, wait a minute. I mean, of course, someone, I mean, if you're, if you're giving someone a warm blanket, you're giving someone a warm meal, they're just going to believe whatever you believe whatever you say, say whatever you tell them to, to say in order to get those things. And no doubt, there's some, I mean, there's some of that, that that I'm sure happens. But attending to the needs of the poor, all of their needs, not just their physical needs, this is not a new strategy on behalf of the church. This isn't just something like, you know, we've kind of figured out, like, oh, here's a good way to win converts. This is part of Jesus' mission from the very beginning. When Jesus first started his public ministry, you remember this? In Luke chapter 4, he goes into the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah to kind of do the reading. And he unrolls the scroll to what we would now refer to as Isaiah 61. And this is what he reads. He says, he reads, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then here's the kicker. This is my favorite part. He hands the scroll back to the attendant and he sits down and he starts his teaching by saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, yeah, you know all that stuff we're talking about? Here it is. That's what I'm here to do. And, and, and surely, just like we said a minute ago, the definition of, of poor and blind and prisoner and, and, and oppressed in Isaiah 61 and in the mind of Jesus, sure, they all have broader meanings than just the physical poor, the physically oppressed. But there's a spiritual meaning as well as the physical. They aren't less than the physical, but they are, they are at least the physical. So as a result, it shouldn't surprise us then that, when the, that even when these terms are used in a more spiritual sense, the poor in spirit, right, the spiritually blind, the spiritually oppressed, right, if, if those are the metaphors that God uses to describe our poverty of goodness in comparison to him, the metaphors he uses to describe our blindness to the truth and our slavery to sin, and, and in a metaphorical sense, that they are. That's exactly what they're describing. But if they are the metaphors then it shouldn't surprise us at all that those metaphors resonate, that they click, that they connect with the physically poor, with the blind and the oppressed. Right? And so it makes perfect sense then the that the gospel takes root in Nepal and in places among the poor. Not because, be careful of your Western arrogance here, not because they are unwittingly bribed into it, because they're uneducated, but because of their position, because of their lack of worldly wisdom, because of their lack of influence, they get the metaphor. They understand what it means in a way that we sometimes have no idea. And so God chooses them to receive the message that the wise, 
the strong and the noble reject in their arrogance. He chooses them to make a point. What's the point? Verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. In other words, those who recognize their low history have no grounds for boasting when they're called into the high presence of God because boasting is excluded. Because those who are called to Christ are not called because they're inherently deserving. What's the basis then? Why then? What was the basis for their calling? Well, it's interesting. If you just kind of have A and B, right, you'd kind of be left by saying like, okay, I get it. You've convinced me. I get it. I boast too much. <laughs> I'm worse than I thought. I should remember that. You're right. I'm called to something greater. I should do that. I should work harder, boast less. I got it. But you know what's interesting? You try to do this, it's really hard. Like, try in your heart to eliminate that desire to compare yourself to other people, to, to, to boast of, you, of yourself versus others. At the, remember that Wall Street Journal column I was, I was referencing? It's fascinating. For all of its ranting and, 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 and complaining about the epidemic of boasting, it actually has a section, you know, one of those little call-out boxes? It has a section where it suggests ways that you can boast without seeming like you're boasting. And I went back and looked at it. I was like, is this satire? Is this trying to be cynical? Like, what? I think it's actually serious. Right? But get this. It gives you five suggestions about how you can shine without being a braggart. That's what it says. Let me just, just two examples. First, there's the humble brag. It goes something like this. Boy, that commute this morning was terrible. I am exhausted after that 10-mile run this morning to have to endure a commute like that. Right? You just kind of slip it in there in the midst of your humility of how, how awful you feel. Right? Or this, I think, is my favorite. You count your bragging as a compliment. Right? You say something like, wow, that is wonderful. That's amazing that, you, that your son was able to get through that grueling application process to Harvard. That's, that's awesome, because I remember how hard it is when my son was doing his Rhodes Scholarship application. And, <laughs> right? See, you're relating to them, you know? See, but, but we do stuff like that, don't we? Right? Or we want to. And what's, what's, what's funny about it is the Wall Street Journal is absolutely powerless to do anything about it. It offers really no suggestions about what you can do. It just gives suggestions, okay, here's a way to do it without maybe seeming as if you're doing it as much. Right? And I wonder if, in a sense, what the Wall Street Journal is doing is conceding the fact that it isn't, it's, it's in fact true, that we are made to boast. I mean, boasting is, in a sense, just praise, giving glory to something. Now, the negative sense, which we've been talking about so far, all we've been talking about, is self-praise, wanting that glory to be for ourselves. But what if, what if instead of trying to eliminate that which we cannot eliminate in ourselves, that is the instinct to praise something, we center ourselves on a more appropriate, more satisfying object for that praise. What if we boasted in the thing that we were actually designed to boast in? Look at verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So just review, go back. So if we are called, like it says in verse 26, to follow Jesus, what is the basis for that calling? Why would God call us? And, and if we're chosen, like it says in verses 27 and 28, then what is the basis for that choosing? Why would God choose us? It's certainly not our history, because our history is low. It's certainly not how the world measures things, education, power, social status, because God chooses the low in order to bring shame to those things. What then? 
It's only because, verse 30 tells us, we are in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean, in Christ Jesus? What does it mean to be in him? It's a phrase Paul uses all throughout his letters. We're in him. We're in, we're in Christ. One commentator kind of describes it as, you know, Jesus is like the atmosphere that we live in. He's all around us, and, and we get our life by being in him. And that's helpful to an extent. A more helpful, a more helpful analogy for me, I was thinking about this, a more helpful image is, have you ever seen one of those superhero movies or a superhero TV show? When some poor person is, a, is like near a bomb that's about to explode and they, and they can't get away, they're unable to get away and Superman or some, some, someone like that kind of swoops in and without time to get the person away, what Superman does is you know, kind of kneel down, lean over the person, put himself between the bomb and the person and wrap his cape around them and the bomb goes off, right? And then, and then you know, the smoke clears and the flames die down and, and, and you're able to see again and what do you see? You see Superman. You don't see the person because Superman is completely around them. And then Superman kind of unwinds his cape and, and the person is there, stunned, but, but completely safe. Because Jesus has used, Superman has used his power like Jesus on behalf of the person who is powerless in that situation. Now that's, that, that is what Jesus is doing. See, it says in verse 30 that Jesus became wisdom for us. He, he became what we couldn't be. And then Paul describes what that, what that wisdom is. What's that mean? He's, that is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Do you see that? What is our low history? Go, go back to the very beginning. It's that we're not wise. So, so what, is, what does God do? He makes Jesus wisdom for us. Right? He calls us into him. We who have no influence. We who have no status. Jesus calls, God calls us into Jesus so that he becomes the wisdom for us, the wisdom that we don't have. He becomes our righteousness, right? A legal standing, our legal standing before God. Jesus becomes that for us. Our holiness, not some advanced moral performance on our behalf, but a status that is given to us as a result of Jesus. He becomes our redemption, right? bringing us out of slavery, paying the price for us, paying the ransom so that we can be free. And, and he doesn't just he doesn't just pay the ransom, does he? He actually becomes the ransom. Right? He became wisdom for it. He becomes the ransom. Right? I mean, so, you know, he's, he's sort of the Superman who absorbs the blast for us. I mean, that's sort of true. But the better image is the Bible's image for Jesus of a lamb. Right? Because he doesn't just pay the ransom. He is the ransom. Have you ever considered that? Why a lamb? I mean, why? Why does John the Baptist call Jesus the Lamb of God? Why do the angels in Revelation 5, you know, worship Jesus as the Lamb who was slain? Right? Because he was sacrificed? Sure, but I mean, lots of animals were sacrificed in the Old Testament system. Right? For example, I was thinking about this earlier this week. Why, did, why wasn't, why did, why isn't Jesus a bull? Bull. Strong. Powerful. Why not a bull? Well, I mean, perhaps... Part of it is, is this. A lamb is much more accessible. Bulls are expensive. Only the rich and the powerful would have bulls. Right? And see, that's the point that Paul's making here. We are, we're not bulls. We're not strong. We're sheep. We're common. We're weak and we're helpless. Jesus didn't become a bull. He became a lamb. And in his death on the cross, the ultimate act of worldly weakness and foolishness, we become the strength that we're not. We're made alive 
by a dead lamb. That is your true boast. Right? That's why Paul concludes in verse 31 in this summary statement, therefore, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And, and it's, like, it's like Kevin was talking about last week. This is hard for us to grab. Because this is not how the world would do it. The world's saviors are bulls. They're not lambs. Its kings don't hang on crosses. But it's in the world's perception of weakness that the true power is found. Now, just real quickly, just an objection that can be lodged here when you look at verse 31. As, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, because the charge can be made like, really? I mean, is God really commanding us to, to boast in him? I mean, isn't he actually then asking us to do for him what he forbids us to do? Is God just an egomaniac? I mean, so for example, like if you were walking down the street and someone came up to you and said, you know all that stuff that you're boasting in? All those things? Forget about those things. Those things are worthless. You want something to boast in? Boast in me. And what would you do if someone came up to you on the street like that? You'd say, who do you think you are? God or something? And exactly. Right? See, instinctually we say, like, who do you think you are? You think you're God? Because you see, God is the only person, the only being in the entire universe for whom the command to consider him as the ultimate, the ultimate source of satisfaction, the ultimate source of joy, that which is absolutely worthy of praise, the only person for whom that's really true. He is worthy of those things. And so he commands us to do it, to recognize what is, what is true. But more than that, he doesn't just command us to do what is true. He commands us to do what is best for us because if, in fact, this is how we were designed, designed to find our ultimate joy, our ultimate satisfaction, our purpose, our meaning in him and in him alone, then his command to recognize that, to, find, to, to root ourselves in that, to boast in him is the most loving thing that he could possibly do because to withhold that is to withhold the very thing that we need. For him to withhold his glory, to say, nah, you don't need to, nah, you don't need to, to boast in me, is actually very unloving because he's keeping from us the very thing that we need, the very thing that we're designed to do. And so when he commands us to boast in him, he's not just telling us to recognize what is true. It's an act of love. And it is, it is where the true power is found. In Acts chapter 3, two of the early disciples, Peter and John, and this is before Paul came on the scene, but Peter and John are walking into the temple courts, right? The very earliest days of the Christian church after Jesus' death and resurrection. And as they're walking into the temple courts, they see a beggar who's right there at the entrance to the temple courts and he's, and he's begging for money. And Peter looks at him and he says, he says hey, hey, look at us. He says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. And the man is healed. Now, this isn't an excuse to, like, to withhold material wealth from people who are in need. Right? It's not saying that we shouldn't use silver and gold. Right? But, but it, what it does is it illustrates that the power to change someone's life is not found in what the world boasts in. Because the world's answer to, to problems like that is like silver and gold, money. If we just had the resources, we could, we could solve that. And resources are fine, and God uses them. But that's not where the power to change comes from. The power to change a person, an individual, a culture, ultimately comes from the one that is our true boast. It comes from Jesus of Nazareth. The story goes that in the mid-1200s, 
the great Roman Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas, is visiting Rome. And he goes to, to call on Pope Innocent IV, who was the pope at the time. And supposedly, according to the story, as Aquinas walks in, the pope is, 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 is found to be counting out money for some, for some purpose. And he looks at Aquinas, and he says kind of with a you know, twinkle in his eye, referencing what had happened in, in Acts chapter 3, he says, You see, Thomas, no longer can the church say, silver and gold I do not have. And Aquinas supposedly replies, well, that's true, Holy Father, but neither can she say, rise and walk. You see, that's not where the power is. Power isn't in the silver and gold. The power is in Jesus himself. Verse 31, when Paul says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, it's most likely a reference to Jeremiah chapter 29, when he says it's written, or Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. That's what he's referring back to. This is what Jeremiah says. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. So what Paul is saying is what Jeremiah prophesied is now fulfilled in Jesus. Right? He is the one that gives us the ability to know him to know that he is the Lord, to be our kindness, to be our justiceness, to be our righteousness on our behalf, to be our true boast. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you are what we cannot be, that you are our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, that you have become that for us, that you are the risen lamb, perfect, spotless righteousness, unchangeable in your glory. And so, Lord, as we worship you, we pray that we would do it in recognition of that, recognizing that we come with a low history and that our high calling is made possible only because of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.